Well, good morning, folks. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Why don't you grab them at this point in time? And you can turn with me to uh, the Old Testament prophet by the name of Haggai, the book of Haggai. Now, if you're struggling to find the book of Haggai, no worries. It's towards the end of your Old Testament. In fact, it is the third book from the end. So if you uh, happen to find uh, uh, your, the end of your Old Testament, you got uh, Malachi, go back a little bit. If you're using your pew Bible like I have right here, uh, you can turn to page 769 as we begin in Haggai chapter 1, uh, our sermon series, Putting God First. Last Sunday, we did an introduction to the book of Haggai, and this morning, we will be actually getting into the text, Haggai chapter 1, page 769, as we see the first of four messages, the first of four messages that the Lord gives to Haggai to give to the people of God both then and today. Let's pray, and we'll dive in. Father, we pray that you would bless the the preaching and speaking and hearing and living of your word. Father, we desire to put you first, to put your priorities uh, first in our priority list, and yet we recognize that so often uh, so many other um, uh, things, so many other pursuits, so many other desires, uh, so many other priorities can creep their way to the top of uh, the list and the top of our hearts, and uh, we may not even be aware of it. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to your people afresh through the words of this prophet Um, thousands of years old, and yet through your spirit, you speak to your people still today. And so help us, we pray, in the name of Christ, to hear you and to respond to you. We ask in in the name of Jesus and God's people said together, amen. Well, the story is told of a, a prosperous young investment baker, and he was driving his brand new BMW on the a mountain road during a snowstorm. As he veered around a one sharp turn, he lost control of his vehicle and began to slide uh, towards a, a steep cliff. At the very last moment, he unbuckled his seatbelt and flung open the door and leaped from the car, saving his life, which then plummeted to the bottom of the ravine and burst into flames. Although he had escaped with his life, he suffered some very gruesome injuries. In fact, somehow his arm had been caught at the hinge of the door, and as he jumped from the vehicle, his arm was ripped from his body. Well, a passing trucker saw the accident and the man, and so he pulled over and asked if there was something he could do. Incredibly, the man was oblivious to his injury as he looked over at his BMW burning in the ravine below him, and he cried aloud, my BMW, my BMW, my brand new BMW. Well, the trucker pointed out to him that he was missing an arm. And he said, you've got bigger problems, mister, than that car. We've got to find your arm. Maybe they can put it back on. The banker looked at the arm and where had it had been and paused and began to groan. Oh, no, my new Rolex, my new Rolex. Well, today as we begin Haggai chapter 1, we're going to discover that God's people too were caught up in some wrong priorities. They had chosen to build up their own homes and their own lives instead of God's temple as they had returned from exile back to the promised land. 
Well, this morning in Haggai's first message, it's uh, simply broken up into two sections. The first section in verses 1 through 11 is a rebuke. It's a rebuke as God calls out his people's misplaced priorities, and he calls on them, he exhorts them to reignite a temple-building project that had been on the shelf for some 16 years. You may remember that they returned from the, uh, into the land from exile. They built the foundation of the temple, Things got hard and they stopped for 16 years. Well, we see a rebuke in the first half of this chapter. The second half of the chapter, verses 12 through 16, the people respond. They respond to the Lord and his prophet Haggai in obedience and they begin to rebuild. They begin to rebuild. So rebuke and rebuilding is the substance of this first chapter and message. As God tells his people, build my house. Build my house. Well, let's begin in chapter 1, verse 1, as we get into this initial rebuke from God through the prophet. In verse 1, we, ta- we see the situation. So uh, it just kind of sets the historical narrative for us. The book begins uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, giving us the date, the messenger, that is the prophet Haggai, and the recipients of his message. Take a look at verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day... Of the sixth month. Now, notice the date. It's important. It's the first day. So, the first day of the month. The first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jezodak, the high priest. So, the stage is set. It's the beginning of the month. The Lord speaks his word through the prophet to two key leaders of the land. He speaks to the governor, the political leader of Israel, and he speaks to the high priest, the spiritual leader of the land. The Lord speaks to the leaders, who's then going to speak to the people. And let's find out what the Lord has to say as we get into a set of two accusations. Starting in verse 2 and running into verse 4, we see two accusations from the Lord to his people. And the first accusation, I sum it up this way, the Lord tells his people in verse 2, quit your excuses. Stop giving me your excuses, in verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, so the Lord is going to put the excuse of the people on the lips of the people. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. See, here God calls, he he calls his people's bluff. He names the rationalization for having not completed the rebuilding of the temple as he had commanded them to do so. And what was their rationalization? What was their excuse? Well, apparently they were saying, well, it's just not time yet. Yes, it's been 16 years. Yes, the temple is laid fallow. But it's just not time. Yeah, maybe the time will come in a month or a year. Maybe it will be time at some point, Lord, but not now. It's just not time. That was their excuse. And that leads us to the first point to ponder for you and me. What excuses are we giving to the Lord? What excuses might you and I be giving to the Lord for not doing what he wants us to do? Are we making excuses today? Are we doing what God's people in in Haggai's day were doing, justifying their disobedience? Rationalizing their delayed obedience? Friend, what excuses are you making for not doing 
what you know the Lord wants you to do. For not coming to church regularly, being with the redeemed for the breaking of the word and worship. What, what excuses maybe are you making for not being a part of that Bible study? You know you should be in one, but, you know, you've got other priorities. What excuses are you making for not uh, giving regularly to the church, for giving to missions, for, being, for not inviting your neighbor over who you know needs to be welcomed into this community? Friends, what we see here is that the Lord hears our excuses and he knows our excuses. And what does he do with them? He calls us out. He names our excuses. Well, the second accusation follows, and it's in verse 3. It's related to the first. Not only does the Lord say, quit your excuses, but then he tells his people, question your priorities. Notice what he says in verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? See, in response to their excuse, God fires back. This is, this is kind of what he says. The Lord says, oh, 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 I see. It's not time to rebuild my house, you say? Oh, well, it, it must be time then for you to build your house, your luxurious house, because, well, that's exactly what you've been doing as my house lays in ruin. Quit, question your priorities, he says. But it actually gets worse. Let me ask you a quick question. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but the thought came to me, and I began to read in the, uh, the, the book of Ezra, which also speaks about the events of this day. Where do you think the Jewish people got the money and the materials to make their own houses luxurious. Notice, they made paneled houses. That's a reference to very nice wood that they would put in their homes. So not only were they like rebuilding wood huts, they were making nice houses for themselves. Where did they get the money? Where did they get the material? Remember, they were refugees. They were stripped from their homes for 70 years, lived in exile, came back to the promised land with nothing but what they had on their back. How could they afford to build luxurious homes? Well, we see in Ezra chapter 3 that King Cyrus of Persia had given God's people money and materials to do what? To rebuild the temple. Now, what do you think they did with that money? What do you think they did with that material? Well, they initially rebuilt the, the, the foundation of the Lord's temple, but when things got tough and opposition came they apparently decided that it was time to rebuild their own homes with that money and rebuild their own lives with that material. Wow. And it leads us to another point to ponder. How might we be building our own homes, figuratively speaking, instead of the Lord's? How might you be tending your own house, figuratively speaking, but not the Lord's? See, how we choose to, to use our time and our talents and our treasures speaks to our priorities, right? Do we pursue God's priorities first or ours? How do we use our time? How do you use your time, especially your free time, your non-work hours? Are you involved in God's priorities expressed in the ministries of the local church? Do we participate in ministries or do we just take from 
ministries? Do we serve in ministries or are we just served by the ministries? Are we givers or are we takers? What about our, our talents, that which you have been gifted by the Lord to do? Do you use them for your own benefit to serve your own families? Or do you use them at church and in the community at large to serve other people? What about your treasures, your money? Do you give regularly to the local church and to the cause of Christ? Or is it not that high on your priority list? See, one man, one commentator by the, by the name of Alden is right. He says this, Many Christians are like those ancient Hebrews, somehow convincing themselves that economy, i.e. being cheap, in financing God's work is all important, while at the same time sparing no expense in acquiring their personal luxuries. Can we not be like God's people so many years ago? And certainly while we can apply this figuratively, I think we can apply it literally, though in a different way than in, in the Old Testament. So, so for the Old Testament people of God, for the Old Testament people of God, not building and not keeping up the temple was disobedience. God had told them to do that. God had promised that the temple would be the place that he would visibly dwell among his people. It's not like that for us in the church age. It's a new dispensation. The church building is not the temple of God. God has chosen not to, to, to dwell in a building, but in people, in the church, in me and you who are followers of Christ. However, however, there is still a relationship between the two. One really good pastor of about 100 years ago, G. Campbell Morgan, great Presbyterian pastor, he once said this. He said, whereas the house of God today is no longer material, but spiritual. The material, i.e. buildings and grounds, the material is still a very real symbol of the spiritual. When the church of God in any place, in any locality, is careless about the material place of assembly, the place of its worship and its work, it is a sign and evidence that its life as a church is at a low ebb. So we have to think about this. If our material building, its care and its upkeep, is a, quote, very real symbol of the spiritual in our church, what does it reveal about us? We need to ask that question. Do we say, can we say like the Jews of old, the time has not yet come. It's simply not time. We don't have time to come to a church work day. We don't have time to put in extra hours making sure that the house of God here is what it should be. And yet somehow we find time to make sure that our yards are mowed and our houses look very nice, right? We can be much like the people of God. Well, the section ends in verses 5 through 11 with two explanations to the people about the current hardships that they were experiencing with an exhortation right in the middle. Take a look at verse 5 in your text. It begins with God explaining what the people's misplaced priorities had produced. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. We see that over and over again in this little book. You have planted much, but harvested little. That doesn't sound like a good harvest. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in them. 
When I was a teenager, I had one pair of shorts that I wore every day, practically, if my mom would let me. All the time, my favorite shorts. And uh, I would put my wallet in my back pocket. That's just where I had it. And eventually, after years, there was a hole that began to form in my back pocket, but it still held my wallet, and I didn't think much of it. And one morning, I uh, find my way uh, to school, and I'm in the parking lot, and uh, I'm going into school, and and I look for my wallet to put it in my car. And lo and behold... It's not there. And I, and I reach in my pocket, and my hand goes through my pants, right? The hole had gotten so big that the wallet just fell out. Um, and I was like, oh, great. Thankfully, it was at home. I had gotten dressed, and the wallet just slipped out. So I didn't lose any money. But that's the image that the Lord says. This is what the people were experiencing because of their misplaced priorities. They were putting money in a purse with a hole in it, right? Wow. Their harvests were divinely deprived, Their drink was decreed to be deficient. Their clothing was instructed to be inadequate. Their paychecks were were pulled from their purse by providence. That's what they were experiencing. Notice the exhortation in verses 7 and 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I might take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Did you notice what their motive for obedience was in these verses? Their motive for, for obedience is this. So that I may take pleasure in it, number one, and be honored. So here's another point for us to ponder. As Christians, obedience pleases and honors the Lord, and that should motivate us to be obedient to God. The Lord is trying to motivate his people towards obedience. And he says, it pleases me when you obey me, and it honors me when you obey me. Friends, Christianity, Christianity is a relationship with the one living God by means of faith in his Son, his life and death and resurrection, lived through the power of the Spirit. And Christian obedience is first and foremost done in the context of relationship, not rules. Here we see that obedience pleases the Lord. It honors the Lord. So friends, here's the truth. If you're not a Christian, if you're not born again, if your heart is not changed to be a lover of God rather than a hater of God and a hater of sin rather than a lover of sin, then this does not motivate you. If you are not a Christian, the idea that I want to please the Lord and I want to honor him and that's why I should obey him, that does nothing for you because you're not a Christian. But if you're a Christian and you say, my obedience to the Lord, it pleases him. And he's my heavenly father. And I want to honor my heavenly father. Like sons and daughters want to honor their earthly father. Then that is great motivation, is it not? For me and you. Well, what follows in verses 9 through 11 is a second explanation. And it sounds very much like the first. But it's much more explicit. They were suffering because they had put themselves first. Notice verse 9. You expect much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. So notice, he's going to tell them why they were experiencing this. Because of my house, which remains a ruin. Emphasis on that word. We'll come back to it in a second. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, verse 10, 
Because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Boy, the Lord fleshes it out for the people, does he not? He spells it out in all sorts of detail. He makes it clear the connection between the people's poverty and their disobedience. He uses a word play, and you don't see it in English. But if you're looking in Hebrew, there's a, there's a word play here in the text that shows the connection between their fields being a ruin and the temple being a ruin. This is what God is saying. He's saying, he's saying something like this. You want to leave my temple a ruin? Okay, you do that. I will leave your fields a ruin. That's what the text says. Well, following this rebuke of the people's misplaced priorities in verses 1 through 11, we see them respond. And unlike time and time again, we see with the people of God, they don't respond positively. But this time, this time, the people hear and they respond and their hearts are stirred and they dedicate themselves to rebuilding the temple in verses 11 through 15. It, it's a good story. It ends well. In verse 12, we see the people's dedication. Notice verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jezodak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai. Why? Because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Despite Israel's history of not listening to the prophets, almost miraculously here, they respond. They listen. They repent of their sin. They gain a new sense of obedience to God's priorities over their own priorities. And they dedicate themselves to the task of rebuilding the Lord. God had sent Haggai. They respond to him and they feared God. They revered him in his word and they responded in obedience. And in verses 13 through 15, we get a wonderful response by God to the response of the people. So the people hear the Lord, they repent, they decide to obey, and then in response to their dedication, we see inspiration. In verses 13 through 15, the Lord inspires his people. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. So it's kind of a a second message within this chapter, right? And this is what the Lord said. I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jezodak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. So what did they do? They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. Now notice, verse 15, we get an important date marker. On the 24th day of the sixth month. When did this message originally come to the people? What day of the month was it? The first day. And then on the 24th day, the Lord stirs their heart 
And this is what I think happened. I think they heard the message of the Lord through Haggai. They repented and they began to obey. They went up to the mountaintops and they had their saws and their axes and they chopped down wood and they brought it back to Jerusalem and they were preparing to rebuild the temple. And then, after all of that preparation, on the 24th day, 23 days later, rebuilding on the house of the Lord began. Having taken steps of obedience... God gives them this wonderful promise in verse 13. He assures them, I am with you. This is a promise of his protective presence. Why did they stop in the first place? Remember, the Samaritans to the north were threatening them. The king of Assyria Assyria was threatening them. And so they were fearful for their lives. And so they stopped. And here the Lord says, now that you've started, regardless of what they do and regardless of what he does, it doesn't matter. Because why? I'm with you. I'm with you. I will protect you. And the Lord stirs up the people's hearts. I love that language. He stirs up. He motivates. He encourages. He moves them into action with divine motivation. It's a beautiful picture, which leads us to one final point to ponder. What does repentance look like for a person of God? I think this text helps us see what it looks like when we find ourselves in disobedience to God. What does it look like for us to repent of that? Three things that I see out of the text. Repentance results, number one, in fearful obedience. It results in fearful obedience. Number two, it results in a renewed relationship with God. And number three, it results in a renewed commitment to his priorities. So we saw in verse 12, right? Repentance leads to fearful obedience. Friends, I don't know about you, but I way too often, if I find myself doing something that I shouldn't do or not doing something that I should do, and I'm convicted by it, the Spirit says, that's wrong, you shouldn't be doing that. That's wrong, you should be doing that. And I feel guilty, and I feel as if I'm wrong, and then somehow it stops with that. I'm like... The Lord has convicted me. I feel bad about that. And that's a good thing. But friends, repentance is not just feeling bad about what you've done or not feeling bad about what you've not done because real repentance leads to action. It's not just doing, uh, feeling something. It's, it's doing something. Real repentance leads to life change, however slowly it may be. So what about you? When you find yourself in disobedience to the Lord, not doing something you know you should or doing something you know you shouldn't, um, do you just simply feel bad about it and think, well, God has convicted me, I'm going to move on and then keep doing the same thing over and over again? Or does something change? Do you decide to go a different way? Because real repentance, it, it results in fearful, reverent obedience towards God. But not only that, It also results in a renewed relationship with God. That's what happened with these people. The Spirit of the Lord stirred them. He worked in their lives, right? He wasn't doing that before because they were disobedient. They were disobedient to him. But now they took a step of repentance. They said, God, I'm going to obey you. And what happened? The Lord began to work. He promised that he would be with them in a way that he wasn't before. And he stirred them up to obedience. It renews It it, it leads to a renewed relationship with God. Friends, when we truly repent, when we feel bad and guilty, and then we take measures to change, the Lord draws near to us because we're drawing near to him. So I don't know about you. If you're feeling kind of distant from the Lord, 
these days. It may be because your repentance is fake, because your obedience is not real. Repentance results in fearful obedience, a renewed relationship with God, and finally, it results in a renewed commitment to his priorities. It's saying, God, I had this is my priority. Now you are going to be my priority. This is what I was doing. This is what I was prioritizing. What were the people of God then prioritizing? Their own homes, their own livelihood, their own luxuries. But that all changed. They said, God, I realize now that your priority is the temple, is your house. So I'm going to make that my priority. It results in a commitment, a renewed commitment to his priorities. I love the language. I love the language. The Lord stirred the spirits of the leaders and of the laymen to work on God's temple. Friends, that's what I'm praying for this church. That's what I want to see happen, is that the Lord would stir our hearts to make his kingdom in his church, in his program, in his priorities, our priorities, both inside the physical building of this church and as we go out, that we would have his priorities first. But friends, we will have a tangible opportunity next Sunday. And Stan just told us about it this morning. And my prayer is that the Lord would stir my heart and your heart that we would rise up together and take care of our basement. It needs work. We need laborers. We need laborers. Skilled laborers like many of you and very unskilled laborers like me, right? We all can pitch in so that the basement can be full of kids being taught the Bible and the gospel and learning to relate to Jesus so that they would become the next generation of this church. And so, friends, may the Lord stir up our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we pray what we've just spoken of, that you would stir the hearts of your people, myself included, that in all of our lives, as we go to school, as we go to work, as we stay at home, whatever it is that we're doing, that we would recognize if your priorities are not ours and that you would lead us into true repentance that feels guilty because we've done wrong and that is through the Spirit takes decisions and steps to to change that. Father, stir the hearts of your people afresh. May we uh, in this church, both spiritually and physically, in who we are as a people and what we do in this building, it reflects something of you and of who we are. Lord, may we tend for it and care for it well and be willing to even sacrifice time and talent and treasure so that you might be honored and made much of, so that you might take pleasure in it and be honored. We ask it in the name of Christ. And God's people said, amen. Amen. See you next week, guys.